Section 14 of The Evil Guest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Evil Guest by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Section 14. I myself am that patient, sir, said Marston with an effort. Your surmise is right. I am not mad, but unequivocally menaced with madness. It is not to be mistaken. Sir, there is no misunderstanding the tremendous and intolerable signs that glare upon my mind. And pray, sir, have you consulted your friends or your family upon the course best to be pursued? inquired Dr. Parks with grave interest. No, sir, he answered sharply and almost fiercely. I have no fancy to make myself the subject of a writ de lunatico inquirendo. I don't want to lose my liberty and my property at a blow. The course I mean to take has been advised by no one but myself, is known to no other. I now disclose it, and the causes of it, to you, a gentleman, and my professional adviser, in the expectation that you will guard with the strictest secrecy my spontaneous revelations. This you promise me? "'Certainly, Mr. Marston, I have neither the disposition nor the right to withhold such a promise,' answered the physician. "'Well, then, I will first tell you the arrangement I propose, with your permission, to make, and then I shall answer all your questions respecting my own case,' resumed Marston gloomily. "'I wish to place myself under your care, to live under your roof, reserving my full liberty of action. I must be free to come and to go as I will, and on the other hand, I undertake that you shall find me an amenable and docile patient enough. In addition, I stipulate that there shall be no attempt whatever made to communicate with those who are connected with me. These terms agreed upon, I place myself in your hands. You will find in me, as I said before, a deferential patient, and I trust not a troublesome one. I hope you will excuse my adding that I shall myself pay the charge of my sojourn here from week to week in advance. The proposed arrangement was a strange one, and although Dr. Parks dimly foresaw some of the embarrassments which might possibly arise from his accepting it, there was yet so much that was reasonable as well as advantageous in the proposal that he could not bring himself to decline it. The preliminary arrangement concluded, Dr. Parks proceeded to his more strictly professional investigation. It is, of course, needless to recapitulate the details of Marston's tormenting fancies, with which the reader has indeed been already sufficiently acquainted. Dr. Parks, having attentively listened to the narrative, and satisfied himself as to the physical health of his patient, was still sorely puzzled as to the probable issue of the awful struggle already but too obviously commenced between the mind and its destroyer in the strange case before him. One satisfactory symptom unquestionably was— the as yet transitory nature of the delusion, and the evident and energetic tenacity with which reason contended for her vital ascendancy. It was a case, however, which for many reasons sorely perplexed him, but of which notwithstanding he was disposed, whether rightly or wrongly the reader will speedily see, to take by no means a decidedly gloomy view. Having disburdened his mind of this horrible secret, Marston felt for a time a sense of relief amounting almost to elation, with far less of apprehension and dismay than he had done so for months before, he that night repaired to his bedroom. There was nothing in his case, Dr. Parks believed, to warrant his keeping any watch upon Marston's actions, and accordingly he bid him good-night, in the full confidence of meeting him, if not better, at least not worse, on the ensuing morning. He miscalculated, however. Marston had probably himself been conscious of some coming crisis in his hideous malady, when he took the decisive step of placing himself under the care of Dr. Parks. Certain it is that upon that very night the disease broke forth in a new and appalling development. 
Dr. Parks, whose bedroom was next to that occupied by Marston, was awakened in the dead of night by a howling, more like that of a beast than a human voice, and which gradually swelled into an absolute yell. Then came some horrid laughter and entreaties, thick and frantic. Then again the same unearthly howl. The practiced ear of Dr. Parks recognized but too surely the terrific import of those sounds. Springing from his bed, and seizing the candle which always burned in his chamber, in anticipation of such sudden and fearful emergencies, he hurried with a palpitating heart, in spite of his long habituation to such scenes as he expected, with a certain sense of horror, to the chamber of his aristocratic patient. Late as it was, Marston had not yet gone to bed. His candle was still burning, and he himself, half-dressed, stood in the centre of the floor, shaking and livid, his eyes burning with the preterhuman fires of insanity. As Dr. Parks entered the chamber, another shout, or rather yell, thundered from the lips of this demoniac effigy, and the mad doctor stood freezing with horror in the doorway, and yet exerting what remained to him of presence of mind, in the vain endeavour, in the flaring light of the candle, to catch and fix with his own practised eye the gaze of the maniac. Second after second, and minute after minute, he stood confronting this frightful slave of Satan, in the momentary expectation that he would close with and destroy him. On a sudden, however, this brief agony of suspense was terminated. A change like an awakening consciousness of realities, or rather like the withdrawal of some hideous and visible influence from within, passed over the tense and darkened features of the wretched being. A look of horrified perplexity, doubt, and inquiry supervened, and he at last said, in a subdued and sullen tone to Dr. Parks, "'Who are you, sir? What do you want here? Who are you, sir, I say?' "'Who am I? Why, your physician, sir, Dr. Parks, sir, the owner of this house, sir,' replied he, with all the sternness he could command, and yet white as a spectre with agitation. "'For shame, sir, for shame to give way thus! What do you mean by creating this causeless alarm, and disturbing the whole household at so unseasonable an hour? For shame, sir, go to your bed, undress yourself this moment! For shame!' Dr. Parks, as he spoke, was reassured by the arrival of one of his servants alarmed by the unmistakable sounds of violent frenzy. He signed, however, to the man not to enter, feeling confident, as he did, that the paroxysm had spent itself. "'Aye, aye,' muttered Marston, looking almost sheepishly. "'Dr. Parks, to be sure. What was I thinking of? How cursedly absurd! And this,' he continued, glancing at his sword, which he threw impatiently upon a sofa as he spoke, "'Folly! Nonsense!' false alarm, as you say, doctor. I beg your pardon. As Marston spoke, he proceeded with much agitation slowly to undress himself. He had, however, but commenced the process when, turning abruptly to Dr. Parks, he said, with a countenance of horror and in a whisper, "'By God, doctor, it has been upon me worse than ever. I would have sworn I had the villain with me for hours, hours, sir, torturing me with his damned sneering threats.' till, by God, I could stand it no longer, and took my sword. Oh, doctor, can't you save me? Can nothing be done for me? Pale, covered with dews of horror, he uttered these last words in accents of such imploring despair as might have borne across the dreadful gulf the prayer of dives for that one drop of water which never was to cool his burning tongue. When Rhoda learned that her father, on leaving Grey Forest, had fixed no definite period for his return, she began to feel her situation at home so painful and equivocal that, 
Having taken honest Willet to counsel, she came at last to the resolution of accepting the often conveyed invitation of Mrs. Mervyn, and sojourning, at all events until her father's return, at Newton Park. "'My dear young friend,' said the kind lady, as soon as she heard Rhoda's little speech to its close, "'I can scarcely describe the gratification with which I see you here, the happiness with which I welcome you to Newton Park, nor indeed the anxiety with which I am constantly contemplating your trying and painful position at Grey Forest. Indeed, I ought to be angry with you for having refused me this happiness so long, but you have made amends at last, though indeed it was impossible to have deferred it longer. You must not fancy, however, that I will consent to lose you so soon as you seem to have intended.' "'No, no, I have found it too hard to catch you to let you take wing so easily. Besides, I have others to consult as well as myself, and persons, too, who are just as anxious as I am to make a prisoner of you here.' The good Mrs. Mervyn accompanied these words with looks so sly and emphasis so significant that Rhoda was fain to look down to hide her blushes, and compassionating the confusion she herself had caused, the kind old lady led her to the chamber which was henceforward, so long as she consented to remain, to be her own apartment. How that day was passed, and how fleetly its hours sped away, it is needless to tell. Old Mervyn had his gentle as well as his grim aspect, and no welcome was ever more cordial and tender than that with which he greeted the unprotected child of his morose and repulsive neighbour. It would be impossible to convey any idea of the countless assiduities and the secret delight with which young Mervyn attended their rambles. The party were assembled at supper. What a contrast did this cheerful, happy, unutterably happy gathering present in the mind of Rhoda to the dull, drear, fearful evenings which she had long been wont to pass at Grey Forest. As they sat together in cheerful and happy intercourse, a chaise drove up to the hall door, and the knocking had hardly ceased to reverberate when a well-known voice was heard in the hall. Young Mervyn started to his feet, and merrily ejaculating, "'Charles Marston! This is delightful!' disappeared, and in an instant returned with Charles himself. We pass over all the embraces of brother and sister, the tears and smiles of reunited affection. We omit the cordial shaking of hands, the kind looks, the questions and answers. All these, and all the little attentions of that good old-fashioned hospitality, which was never weary of demonstrating the cordiality of its welcome, we abandon to the imagination of the good-natured reader. Charles Marston, with the advice of his friend, Mr. Mervyn, resolved to lose no time in proceeding to Chester, whither it was ascertained his father had gone, with the declared intention of meeting and accompanying him home. He arrived in that town in the evening, and having previously learned that Dr. Danvers had been for some time in Chester, he at once sought him at his usual lodgings, and found the worthy old gentleman at his solitary dish of tea. "'My dear Charles,' said he, greeting his young friend with earnest warmth, I am rejoiced beyond measure to see you. Your father is in town, as you supposed, and I have just had a note from him, which has, I confess, not a little agitated me, referring, as it does, to a subject of painful and horrible interest, one with which I suppose you are familiar, but upon which I myself have never yet spoken fully to any person, excepting your father only. And pray, my dear sir, what is this topic? inquired Charles, with marked interest. Read this note answered the clergyman, placing one at the same time in his young visitor's hand. Charles read as follows. My dear sir, I have a singular communication to make to you, but in the strictest privacy, with reference to a subject which, merely to name, is to awaken feelings of doubt and horror. I mean the confession of Merton, with respect to the murder of Winston Berkeley. 
I will call upon you this evening after dark, for I have certain reasons for not caring to meet old acquaintances about town, and if you can afford me half an hour, I promise to complete my intended disclosure within that time. Let us be strictly private. This is my only proviso. Yours with much respect, Richard Marston. Your father has been sorely troubled in mind, said Dr. Danvers, as soon as the young man had read this communication. He has told me as much. It may be that the discovery he has now made may possibly have relieved him from certain galling anxieties. The fear that unjust suspicions should light upon himself, or those connected with him, has, I dare say, tormented him sorely. God grant that as the providential unfolding of all the details of this mysterious crime comes about, he may be brought to recognize, in the just and terrible process, the hand of heaven. God grant that at last his heart may be softened, and his spirit illuminated by the blessed influence he has so long and so sternly rejected. As the old man thus spake, as if in symbolic answering to his prayer, a sudden glory from the setting sun streamed through the funereal pile of clouds which filled the western horizon and flooded the chamber where they were. After a silence, Charles Marston said, with some little embarrassment, "'It may be a strange confession to make, though indeed hardly so to you, for you know but too well the gloomy reserve with which my father has uniformly treated me, that the exact nature of Merton's confession never reached my ears, and once or twice when I approached the subject, in conversation with you, it seemed to me that the subject was one which, for some reason, it was painful to you to enter upon.' And so it was, in truth, my young friend, so it was, for that confession left behind it many fearful doubts, proving indeed nothing but the one fact, that morally the wretched man was guilty of the murder. Charles, urged by a feeling of the keenest interest, requested Dr. Danvers to detail to him the particulars of the dying man's narration. "'Willingly,' answered Dr. Danvers with a look of gloom, and heaving a profound sigh. "'Willingly, for you have now come to an age when you may safely be entrusted with secrets affecting your own family, and which, although, thank God, as I believe they in no respect involve the honour of any one of its members, yet might deeply involve its peace and its security against the assaults of vague and horrible slander. Here, then, is the narrative. Merton, when he was conscious of the approach of death, qualified, by a circumstantial and detailed statement, the absolute confession of guilt which he had at first sullenly made.' In this he declared that the guilt of design and intention only was his, that in the act itself he had been anticipated. He stated that from the moment when Sir Winston's servant had casually mentioned the circumstance of his master's usually sleeping with his watch and pocket-book under his pillow, the idea of robbing him had taken possession of his mind. With the idea of robbing him, under the peculiar circumstances, his servant sleeping in the apartment close by, and the slightest alarm being in all probability sufficient to call him to the spot, the idea of anticipating resistance by murder had associated itself. He had contended against these haunting and growing solicitations of Satan with an earnest agony. He had intended to leave his place and fly from the mysterious temptation which he felt he wanted power to combat, but accident or fate prevented him. In a state of ghastly excitement he had, on the memorable night of Sir Winston's murder, proceeded, as had afterwards appeared in evidence, by the back stair to the baronet's chamber. He had softly stolen into it, and gone to the bedside with the weapon in his hand. He drew his breath for the decisive stroke which was to bereave the supposedly sleeping man of life, and when stretching his left hand under the clothes it rested upon a dull, cold corpse, and at the same moment his right hand was immersed in a pool of blood. 
He dropped the knife, recoiled a pace or so. With a painful effort, however, he again grasped with his hand to recover the weapon he had suffered to escape, and secured, as it afterwards turned out, not the knife with which he had meditated the commission of his crime, but the dagger which was afterwards found where he had concealed it. He was now fully alive to the horror of his situation. He was compromised as fully as if he had in very deed driven home the weapon. To be found under such circumstances would convict him as surely as if fifty eyes had seen him strike the blow. He had nothing now for it but flight, and in order to guard himself against the contingency of being surprised from the door opening upon the corridor, he bolted it, then groped under the murdered man's pillow for the booty which had so fatally fascinated his imagination. Here he was disappointed. What further happened you already know. End of section 14